0: My name is Stacey Sargent-Lawton, and I'm a hospital chaplain. Each week on this podcast, a few fellow chaplains will join me to discuss an episode or two of the great TV hospital drama, ER, from our unique perspectives as spiritual caregivers. This is ER Chaplains Watching ER. Father, please protect my soul. Hi, and welcome to ER Chaplains Watching ER. I'm your host, Stacey Sargent-Lawton, and with me tonight, I have two friends and colleagues in Chaplaincy, Sarah J. Moran. Good evening. And Carrie Walker-Nettles. Hello. So, for our sixth episode, um, it's Christmas in the ER, or Christmas season, anyway. There's snow and holiday songs and all kinds of fun stuff going on. So, to recap, our first episode, which is titled Blizzard... Here is Sarah Jane. I'm gonna start the timer now.
1: It's a few weeks until Christmas.
0: A snowstorm has slowed down the
1: city and not much is happening at the hospital for the beginning of the shift. Spirits are high. Reed and Lewis play a prank on Carter by putting a leg cast on him while he sleeps. A few staff have a snowball fight. Hathaway shows off her huge engagement ring from Taglieri. Ross and Linda, the big farmer rep, are back from their tropical vacation. Mookie is moody because he must still empty the trash cans. The tone of the episode changes to tense and reserved when there is a 32-car pileup on the Kennedy Expressway. The ER team preps physically, emotionally, and spiritually. A wide variety of patients arrive in chaos. There are burns, amputations, lacerations, spinal injuries, and a missing child. In a moment of grace, a nurse sings a hymn to this terrified child. Morgenstern, chief of the ER, arrives hollering, Run it down for me. A new attending doctor, Hicks, jumps right in and performs the re-implementation of a severed leg with Benton. Linda's farm rep is answering phones and ordering food. Mookie, the boy flippantly doing community service under Benton, seems to finally realize the magic and power of the ER as he serves the injured from the pileup. A nun makes an appearance in this episode to pray over a patient that dies. Dr. Ross is upset over his mistakes with this particular man. The mentally challenged, cheerful Patrick wanders into the ER for company, and keeps messing with the speaker system, blaring upbeat Christmas music in the middle of taxing serious life-saving situations. Morris Bozinski comes in with an aortic aneurysm. His chest must be open to save him, and with his life on the line, Bob operates on in the middle of the ER. She reveals that in her country of Poland, she was a vascular surgeon. Carter says he will help her to study. Throughout the episode, Green talks Mr. Blinker through delivering his wife's baby over the phone. She was determined to have a home birth and has locked herself in her bedroom during labor. The blinkers arrive at the end of the episode with the newborn in arm calling to Mark. God bless you, Dr. Green. Thank you.
0: Yeah, a lot I heard on. the timer. I, not, I, I missed by a few seconds. A few seconds. It was close. <laughs> not bad at all. Um. Yeah, so just to start things off, I'll say... Um this brought back memories of a few times that I've had snow days in the ER at work and there is that sort of fun um this is a different kind of day atmosphere going on. We don't have it often especially here in South Carolina. Um but the few times that we have had snow days and usually we have an A team and a B team and the A team has to come in before the storm arrives and plan to stay for however long it takes until the roads are clear for the B team to get in so you have to pack a bag and plan on being at work for two or three days maybe um so and usually the census is down. You know, they discharge as many patients as they can. And sometimes there's just not a lot going on. So there there is kind of a festival atmosphere about it. I did have snowball fights outside the hospital with um, other staff members. There were... Um, the room set aside as movie rooms or everybody would just go and watch a movie together. And, um, there were some, some fun kind of things going on when there was not a lot of activity. So, um, that part was, was true to life. I didn't see any doctors put a cast on any of their colleagues. That was kind of mean, but, um, but yeah, everybody just kind of has fun when they can at times like that. Have you guys had snow days in your hospitals that you worked at?
1: Yes. Um, it does where, where we are in South Carolina, sometimes it, it really does shut down businesses because we don't really know very well how to deal with the snow and we don't have the vehicles, um, or the supplies to deal with it. So it really does slow things down. Uh, That was one of the things that uh, my husband asked about. He says, well, you know, now that there's snow and they realize that there's a pileup, are they going to call in all the all the other crews, you know, make sure that they're overstaffed or do they call in all the PRNs? Do they call people in? I said, yep, yeah, pretty much. Get everybody mm-hmm. you possibly can in there.
0: Yeah, all hands on deck. I think they, in this episode, they called the police or whoever to go get doctors from their homes since they couldn't get there any other way.
2: Mm hmm. Yeah, in upstate South Carolina, we don't get a lot of snow days either, <laughs> um, but we have had those occasional times where, like you said, people are just, you know, digging in and planning on being at work for as long as it takes, And um, but generally, like, I can't really identify with a blizzard. Um, I've never known conditions like that. <laughs> no.
0: Yeah, it was funny when they first um, turned on the TV news report about it on this episode of VR. They were saying that seven inches had already fallen, and you know they were expecting so much more. And just in January of this year, here in Summerville, South Carolina, we got seven inches in like one day, and that was a. Um, once in a 20 years kind of snow like that never happens but um you know it kept snowing on this episode of er but um for us that that seven inches in one day was huge and it lasted for a while so and like like sarah jane said we just don't have the resources to deal with it here we have no salt for the roads or no snow plows or anything like that
2: Mm -hmm. no but stacy you can identify with other kinds of uh mother nature surprises like hurricanes
0: true yes (laughs) we've had a few hurricane warnings here thankfully no actual landfalls um in the 10 years that I've been here but we've had some times when we were um under mandatory evacuation when it looked like a hurricane was gonna hit here um and things like that so yeah I've experienced that a few times and then I mean huge flooding we get that all the time downtown where sometimes I can't get to work because the area around the hospital in Charleston floods really badly on a routine basis That's probably so more relatable because
1: here in, in, in this whole state, I think, besides like the upper part of the mountains, if it does snow, it never lasts more than three or four days. And that's what's so different about, I mean, Chicago in the spring with, with the you know, snow drift from the, the plows on the side of the road that are just black from being there for so long. And when everything refreezes every night, I just don't think we have an idea of like what that's like.
0: mm
2: yeah, that's very true. So, Stacey, what is the protocol when um, the city's being evacuated, but folks like first responders um, and emergency room um, personnel probably need to stay back? Is that like you get to opt in or out? How does that work?
0: Um, It's still the same A-team and B-team protocol. So if I'm on the A-team at that time of the year, like we change it usually every three or four months. Um, We rotate on and off. But if I happen to be on the A-team at that time, then yeah, I have to come in um, to the hospital and just plan to stay until we can leave, until the storm is over. And I have a, a special car pass that I can show to police if they've got downtown roads blocked off so that I can show it and get through so I can get into the hospital okay so yeah there have been
1: times that you've tried to get there and you were not able if i recall correctly right yeah the flooding was so bad because of the flooding yeah you you give it your best shot
2: yeah downtown charleston floods in a good summer afternoon rainstorm Yeah, close at the drop of a hat.
0: Yeah, if it's high tide and we get a little rain, um, it's it's not unusual at all for things to be totally flooded. In fact, the day that I came to MUSC for my job interview, downtown was flooded, and I had a really hard time getting there. And then I drove through this huge puddle, what I thought was a puddle, turned out to be more like a little lake, um, and something in there popped my tire. So I showed up at the hospital (gasps) like an hour and a half late with a flat tire, (laughs) and still got the job. Oh my
2: goodness! I've never heard that story.
0: Yeah, it was a crazy day, and Terry Wilson, who was my boss, um, came out to meet me at the garage where I parked, and I told him everything that had happened because he was on the phone, sort of talking me in, because I also got lost. Um, and he was like, well, come on in the hospital. I'll get you something cold to drink." And I said, "I would love a shot of bourbon." Just like it just came out of my mouth. And um, <laughs> he says, "That's the moment I got the job." <laughs> <laughs>
2: Well, it's a good thing you were telling that to Terry of all folks.
0: Yeah. He's good people. (laughs) But anyway, um, so when they finally do get some action, some patients coming into the ER, um, they go from, you know, famine to feast. It's nothing at all. And then a 28-car pileup on the highway, and they get absolutely flooded with patients. um, And everybody sort of has to pitch in and help. Um, triage everyone Mm -hmm. and and save the patients that they can they get several um, that they are not able to save but um, that they do amazing work as always Um, just sorting through everybody and um, doing surgeries and everything else that they do.
1: This is the first episode I think I've noticed that they have you know patients basically in every corner and every aisle and, and every pathway which I remember there being times certainly in both hospitals that I've worked in where that's happened for a variety of reasons, but that's when our presence is really needed because everyone is on edge and there's not a lot of personal space Mm -hmm. and everyone is waiting and it's noisy. Um, A lot of times it can be warm because there's just such a big body count. Yeah. Um, So it really does, you know, make emotions run high for both, um, staff and patients. So mm-hmm. that was, that's a great opportunity for a chaplain.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, and hospitals prepare, too, uh, for these mass, mass casualty events. I can recall uh, during my time at our local Level 1 Trauma Center, there would be several days throughout the year where they would bring in all of these emergency vehicles and they would bring in, like, pretend car crashes and um, they would run all of these different scenarios and have everyone out there practicing. And um, So it's a good thing they practiced for just such a moment as, as something like this. Um, mm-hmm. was it,
0: 28 cars you said? Yeah, um, which we don't know exactly how many people that adds up to, but um, right. when Doug Miss triages one of the patients, Mr. Ramos, who Doug green tags as someone not, that with, with injuries not that serious, and then he ends up dying, yeah. and Doug is really beating himself up about it, and Mark says to him, you triage 70 patients today. You're human, you know? Yeah. In
2: a short amount of time. Yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: We have a new, new doctor coming in, Dr. Hicks. She has a very strong personality off the bat. And mm-hmm. we notice that um she's an older African American woman and immediately comes up against Benton. And I just like the feeling I get between the two of them. Not I mean, just I really feel like she can challenge him and um that, that she has some good life experience and she's a little bit older and more experienced.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, she seems like oh. a good mentor for him. We also see
2: Ross, Doug Ross, immediately assumed that she's a nurse when she walks in. So he hands her a stack of bedpans. So you can see, once again, like his bias and his privileges um, sort of blinding him to the possibility that this older African-American woman might actually be like a kick-ass surgeon.
0: Yeah.
1: (laughs) He is quick to take them back and say, you won't need those.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Put in mouth.
1: Yes. Um and we see Pat we see Patrick again. Yes. Um
2: he's
1: he doesn't have his helmet on. So they find him one. What kind of helmet was that? Some sort of a sports helmet, maybe um ice hockey or I, I
0: don't know. Maybe
1: so, but, um, yeah. But uh and he and he knows how to use the um the sound system, which leads to—I—I I was laughing out loud, which it might be inappropriate, but you know they're in the middle of these life-saving situations in the trauma bay, and then Jingle Bells suddenly comes blaring on, and it's just—it's mm-hmm. so Patrick. He's just so cheerful and so optimistic, and um, but it—it it is very jarring to all of the the staff.
2: Well, and it's especially problematic when they're trying to run a trauma and they're having trouble hearing each other because the music is blaring over um, the speaker system. But at the same time, it's really, in some ways, just nice. He sort of injects joy into the place, um, which is not appropriate in some cases. And, you know, like I said, problematic when you're running a trauma um, but also, um, I guess a bit of a bit of joy and levity for those folks who are waiting and stressed and scared, and they all
1: relate to Patrick so well in that staff. Yeah. And we find out that the reason that he's wandered in is because his parents have gone on vacation and left him with neighbors to care for him, and he doesn't really like it there. And we think he probably feels safe in the er because he was there before for an injury mm-hmm. so he comes there because he can feel safe and he can feel needed and they really respond well to him and and they give him things to do so you're right that that joy is uh very contagious to the rest of the staff
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and another good use of music in this episode um and, like, when I think back on early seasons of ER, watching it when I was a teenager, one of the moments that has always stood out in my memory is Halle, the nurse, holding this toddler that was found at the scene of the accident, and they don't know who she belongs to, and she's just wailing, and Halle is singing his eyes on the sparrow and rocking this child. Um, I love that moment so much. hmm So I can recall um, a case that I once worked
2: it was a non-accidental trauma, um, meaning, you know, they were investigating it for some of for, you know, child abuse to see um, what happened, what caused this child's injuries. She was a toddler as well. And um, this is one of those cases that has imprinted me significantly, mm-hmm. um, particularly because at the time she was very close in age to my own daughter. Um, But I say all of this to say I had the opportunity to witness the way the nurses and the respiratory techs and even the environmental service um, ladies who worked, um, they ultimately, after she was no longer in the PICU, she was on um, this other unit for an extended period of time. And it was kind of a smaller unit, so there was more of a – more of a one-to-one ratio between the nurses and the, the patients, and, um, but it wasn't as severe as the PICU anymore. But I got to see the way those nurses um, loved on her in lieu of any caregiver, um, being with her during that time, during that season of her life. And no matter which nurse, no matter which unit sector, Terry, No matter which uh, environmental service worker was on staff for a particular shift, um, they all, like, hugged her and rocked her and patted her back and um, probably broke some rules. But it was, like, the kind of, like, love and uh, nurturing that a child needs no matter the circumstances, but then particularly in those set of circumstances, right? Um, so, ladies called to mind these these amazing women that I saw uh, do what I believe was literally love this child back to life. That's appropriate because in this
1: particular point in time, we're in the middle of nurses week mm-hmm. and in, yes, in my residency, I remember in um, in the same area, how protective those nurses were of these children, of these these ones that were so vulnerable and, and really, you know, being the the hands and feet of grace Mm. and love and compassion to them, even when they might not have experienced that in their life the way they needed to.
2: Right. So,
1: yes.
0: Yeah. Shout out to all the great nurses out there. Thank you so much for everything you do, especially for the most vulnerable among us.
1: Speaking of those who are sometimes uh, invisible or in the background or that we make assumptions about, let's talk about Bob. Mm-hmm. Oh, ah. So I'm not sure exactly what Bob was hired for. We know that we know that she decorates the hall, and uh, she's done some other vaguely janitorial things, as far as I know. She mops the floors at one point when it's needed. She brings supplies. Um, but we find out through the, what happens in this episode that um, when she lived in Poland, she was um, a surgeon, and that now that she's in the United States, and we don't know yet what has brought her here or why she made that choice to, to come to the U.S., that um, she's really worried about passing the, the board exam because of the language barrier.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's such a great surprising moment when um, she just jumps in there and (laughs) cracks this guy's chest um, because every, you know, all the other doctors are so busy and no one can get there in time. And she realizes if she doesn't do this, that this guy could die um, and she ends up saving his life, much to everyone's shock. (laughs) And then, you know, she
2: risks her own um, ability or her own potential at her profession because she's now practice medicine without a license. So she has a great amount of fear over um, whether or not that will impede her ability to become a licensed physician here in this country, regardless of her um, passing the board or not. Um, but I, I love the fact that her, her reflex was um, saving this man's life is more important than following the the rule about practicing without a license that speaks way more though. to
1: her character
2: yeah than, absolutely
1: and following the rules because th- that is should be at the, the heart of medicine it is not always but it should right. be and the way that she acted it, i believe really does show her character
2: the F in me Of my ENFP Myers-Briggs type indicator, the F in me honors the F in her. (laughs) (laughs) We cannot be bound by the rules. We are feeling about these things. Love it.
1: Hospital chaplains, a lot of the times when they are in in their training phase, uh, we take personality tests to help (laughs) us understand ourselves and the way that we relate to others. And so this group of us that has been working on this podcast together has uh, taken some time to talk about and compare our different personalities and the different tests we've taken. And it's been (laughs) the topic of much conversation. So I'm sure we'll be coming back to that at some point and trying to discuss the types that uh, these characters on the show are. Perhaps we think that would be a fun thing to do.
2: Yeah. Yeah,
0: that would definitely be interesting. Um, I was really kind of annoyed at Carter when he finds Bob outside after she's crying and trying to hide from everybody after she has done this, you know, surgery that she's not licensed to do. And and Carter kind of laughs off the idea of and is very dismissive of her. You know, she says, now I'll never be a surgeon. And he's just kind of like, well, why would you think you would be, you know? Um, and it just, it blows his mind that she did something else in Poland, you know, besides be a desk clerk or whatever it is that she does here. He um, just can't think outside of what he knows her as. And mm-hmm. um, but so often we judge people who don't speak English as their first language on their their level of English. You know, we as, like assume their intelligence based on that. Um, and just... When I traveled to other countries where I didn't speak the language so well, I, I sort of came up against that, too, that people assume you're not very smart because you don't know all the words in their language. But you got to imagine, you know, what people are like in their in their native tongue. And she was this brilliant vascular surgeon in Poland, and she's just mm. so limited here by her level of English, but she still knows all the medical stuff. She just doesn't know all the words for it. Mm -hmm. And English
1: is a crazy, crazy language. Oh, yeah. It's It's
0: such a mixture of
1: of every other language and all the roots. And it it really doesn't make sense like so many other languages do. And a lot of people who have tried to learn another language know that they're a lot more mathematical. There's a lot less exceptions than there are in English. So that's a really terrible assumption to think. Because I'm sure if I hadn't learned English, you know, as a very young child, trying to learn it now when... Nothing makes sense, and there are more exceptions than rules would be extremely frustrating. So no wonder most of the time she just stays quiet and nobody thinks to ask her about her background. That's kind of sad.
0: Yeah. Mm. And it happens often, I think. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, So, Sarah-Jane, in your recap, you mentioned the nun that we see, and I don't know exactly where she came from, if she was part of the accident or if she works in the hospital. like Nobody seems to recognize her. None of the doctors really show any recognition of her, so I don't think she is a chaplain or anything on staff there, Um, but she just wanders in when Mr. Ramos dies And she's sort of just standing there in the doorway. Kind watching of like them try to an save the An angel,
1: them. like this silhouette. That, yeah. And they all turn and look at her. And then I like that she asked permission to go over there and offer, you know, yes. spiritual care to this man on the table. Um, and she's very respectful. She notices the details, like the fact that he does, you know, have the, a necklace on with a crucifix. Mm-hmm. And so she recognizes him as Catholic and... Um, a beautiful prayer calling him um, her brother in faith.
0: Yeah, I was listening to everything that she says, and she says that part twice. Um, My brother in faith, I entrust you to God who created you. May you return to the one who formed you from the dust of this earth. So She does that twice. Then she goes into Psalm 130 and then does the Lord's prayer. And I was just like, she's just throwing everything at the wall right now, but it's all good stuff. Mm
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And all the doctors are just kind of standing and, you know, listening to her very respectfully, watching her do, you know, her service to this patient after they've done theirs. I've,
1: I've found um, Catholic prayers to be very rhythmic.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And
1: having worked in a Catholic hospital, so that repetition and those, those use of certain phrases um, and, and certain, you know, beloved, uh, uh, you know, prayers and, and, Scripture does make it more rhythmic than we would hear in some other traditions,
0: yeah, I love that too, and um, I'm my faith heritage is Baptist, and we're usually just sort of praying off the cuff, um but I've learned to love the beauty in you know written prayers and ones that are said every time you run into a certain situation, um, I use the book of common prayer a lot now for myself in my own ministry, in my own, um, you know, work as a chaplain, but also my own personal prayer life. I find that repetition and those uniform prayers to be really meaningful. Um, and, and they certainly are for patients in the hospital. A lot of times, one of my favorite memories as a chaplain is a a brazilian woman who wanted me to pray with her and she was praying in portuguese um and she was saying hail mary's over and over and over again and eventually i caught on to the sounds enough that i was able to repeat them with her which is what she wanted me to do so i'm holding her hand and saying hail mary's in portuguese (laughs) which i don't speak at all but it was really beautiful yes i i find the way that um People
1: use Hail Mary's almost as, as a form of meditation, that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You, you get that rhythm going and it, it kind of brings you into another level of, of understanding. And so I, I did enjoy, I did enjoy that and the rosary um as part of you know Catholic traditions at the hospital that I wasn't familiar with before and embraced them whenever I could and when patients asked for them.
2: Right. I think there's something to be said for tradition and ritual in particular when it comes to trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, and we see this also in um, in units where there are memory care issues as well. So, um, you know, whether you have someone who um, has just been through a horrific accident and, you know, that causes your brain to um, sort of hiccup, if you will, for lack of a better way of describing it. Um, So you're not you're not thinking the way that you would if you hadn't just been through a trauma, but you can tap into the things that are sort of um, inscribed on your heart that that you have done over and over and over again. So um, for Catholic folks, you know, that might be um, the rosary. Um, For Protestant folks, it might be something like the Lord's Prayer or the 23rd Psalm. Um, which isn't to exclude Catholics from knowing that either. But um, whatever your tradition is, those um, prayers that you learn by heart or passages of scripture that you learn by heart um, can be particularly um, ministerial, I guess, um, to offer those back to someone um, in moments of trauma um, or when they're lost in in the the fogginess and the cloud of Alzheimer's or or some sort of dementia, Um, and they can't necessarily remember your name or their name or what day it is or what year it is, but you can sing them the hymns of their faith tradition or recite some of these well-known prayers and passages of scripture and they can join right in with you.
1: It really does help to bring them back to who they are and and in yeah. such a sacred way, I remember there was a man in the geriatric um, psychiatric unit that I had been following for several weeks. And he didn't, he, sometimes he would remember me and sometimes he wouldn't. He would always talk about um, days around World War II. And he kept asking me to dance. <laughs> it was obvious that this was something important to him um, in his early life. And, and he asked me, do you know the foxtrot? And I said, I don't, but um, I've done some dance before, and I think I might be able to learn if you would want to teach me. So I was prepared to let him teach me that day, and he said, oh, no, we need to prepare for this. You come back tomorrow. Yeah. I was very concerned about this idea because I didn't know if he would remember the next day. Right. So I went around and I told the nurses, I made a note on the chart. And then I just said, okay, whatever will be, will be. The next day, when I came back on the unit, he was dressed up in a suit with a hat, and he greeted me at the door. (gasps) And he gave me his hand. And he said, can I dance with you? And the nurses had cleared a spot for us, and we did the foxtrot together. And I can say that dance, like, prayer is a language all its own mm-hmm. yeah. that brought that man back to himself. And I have mm-hmm. never, again, sorry, husband, danced like that and been <laughs> led like that, that I was that day with that man and when he did the foxtrot.
0: Oh, I love that.
2: Yeah, that's a beautiful image.
0: Mm-hmm. And that obviously meant so much to him. Mm.
1: It was a big moment. It was him. a fun day. Everyone was all gathered around, and uh, it, it meant a lot to them to watch, too. Mm-hmm. I had the, you know, other, other patients in their wheelchairs clapping for us. <laughs> Even the ones that couldn't get around on their own were watching us dance. Wow.
2: Another infusion of joy. Yes.
0: Yeah. hmm And we see a moment sort of like that of music um, bringing people together and overcoming uh, memory barriers and things like that with um, Mrs. Cavanaugh and Patrick. She joins him in singing a Christmas carol. Mm-hmm. And, you know, here he has a lot of um, limitations mentally and she has dementia. But that Christmas song brings them together and they share a really nice moment Um and then the staff who are watching are talking about the fact that both of them, their families, you know, took a vacation without them, needed a, a break, a respite from caring for them, and they were left with other people. And then they both found their way to the hospital because this is, again, like we said, a place where they feel safe. Mm-hmm. And the and the song they're singing is We Three
1: Kings, mm-hmm. which is a Christmas song about seeking you know, the king, about that journey towards, mm-hmm. towards faith, about that time of hopefulness, that, that speaking of what is to come. And so I think mm-hmm. that's such an appropriate choice for the two of them. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So if you want to have a baby at home, <laughs> it might be a good idea to make the plan, the birth plan beforehand. I think <laughs> that locking yourself in your bedroom in labor is Pretty cruel to your your uh, significant other, and uh, the panic in his voice when he calls Green each time that I just I know that she's in the throes of labor, but I can't help but feel for him, feeling mm-hmm. so helpless. So I would advise everyone to have a birth plan.
0: <laughs> yeah, definitely. Poor Mr. Blinker.
1: <laughs> yes, poor Mr. Blinker.
0: Everything does work out in the end, but who that was a rough day for him. Yes. Obviously for her, too, but <laughs> she got what she wanted. <laughs> was was her... Did
2: she have a midwife who was supposed to come and then was blocked because of the... Blizzard? They didn't say anything about them. No. Mr. Okay. Blinker
1: called at the beginning of the episode and, and said what was going on with the labor. And then Mr. Dr. Green said, go ahead and bring her in. And that's when she said, I don't want to go to the hospital. So I don't know if that was the first time that she had... Expressed that this was their wishes but but like I said that was not a great idea for the whole situation not to mention probably not the safest especially because there was a blizzard going on so
2: that might have been part of what factored into her decision like I don't want to get out on the roads and try and travel to the ER in labor and potentially like risk my child's life trying to get there in such a terrible storm but I will say um just based on my own personal experience when you reach a certain part of labor um there is no logic there is no rationalizing there is no relying on um the sort of higher order thinking, like, mama has gone into primal mode, and if she feels like the most protective thing she can do for the baby is block her husband out, she will. I get that. I resonate with That's it. That's why you have a birth plan
1: beforehand, so you can work <laughs> as a team. Yeah. <laughs> Good point. And I am not against home birth. I just want it <laughs> to happen safely. <laughs>
0: Yeah. You don't want to spring it on your partner in the last minute.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Makes for good TV, but in real life, I don't, I just don't think. so.
0: No. Okay. Um, as we wrap up talking about this episode, does anybody have any final thoughts or favorite moments from the episode?
1: We have some painful moments between, um, Linda and, uh, Carol. Mm. Um, Linda recognizes that Doug Ross is still in love with Carol and uh, brings it up with her, and Carol doesn't know how to handle that, and she's got this huge rock on her hand now, engaged to someone else. So those were some really uncomfortable conversations for me. Um, I'm still not sure what to make of Linda, to be honest, but she was more of a likable person in this episode. It, It developed her a little bit as... Someone more human, not, not just a robot who spends money. She does have feelings behind what she's doing, be they misguided or not.
2: I don't know. I didn't really see that conversation between um, those two women as, as, what's her name, Linda,
1: mm-hmm. being mm-hmm.
2: threatened. Um, no, think, no. Yeah, it kind of seemed more like, I'm noticing this. I'm stating it as fact, um, or at least observable fact to her. Yes. Um, but I also really enjoyed the way that she sort of jumped in and pitched in um, in a way that she could during the crisis, which was really honestly just kind of answering phone calls and trying to direct traffic in that regard. Um, And then seeing that there was a need uh, for food and they didn't have the ability to meet that need, so she just decided to order a whole bunch of pizzas and she paid for it out of her own pocket. So um, she won a little bit of my appreciation and affection by doing that.
0: Yeah, definitely more likable in this episode. I like that she did that. And um, I did like that it was everybody using their gifts the way they could, um, in this crisis situation. And I love that, you know, Linda helping out in that way. And then Mookie, um, going from room to room, bringing supplies. And then Benton ends up having him hold a tourniquet on this man's leg. Um, and really mm-hmm. he got to make himself useful. And that, like, I know what that feels like, you know, it's a great feeling, um, to be able mm-hmm. to be in the midst of all that and feel that you've done something that needed to be done. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm glad that he got to experience yeah. that. Okay, we will take a short break and we'll be back in just a few seconds to discuss the next episode of ER. Peace and someone hold me while I'm fighting off
1: the grave. No her needs a jab.
0: And we're back uh, now to talk about the Christmas episode, uh, the very first Christmas episode of ER, which is titled appropriately enough, The Gift. And here with the bullet is Carrie. Are you ready?
2: As ready as I'm going to be.
0: <laughs> okay, go.
2: So it's Christmas time, and this episode opens with Carter trying to wake Santa. Um, Green hasn't bought a gift for his wife yet, and it's about six hours until Christmas. Um, there's an incoming head wound on the life flight that Bitten and Carter go out to intercept. Meanwhile, Green's trying to walk out the door to grab that gift and intercepts a man carrying his son in who fell through the ice while they were ice fishing, um, and he has nearly drowned. Um, we see Regina again. Um, she's the local schizophrenic who comes in needing Um Ultimately, we learn that um, the child, Murray, who fell through the ice, um, he's able to be saved. Um, the head trauma because of a snowmobile accident has not, um, he does not have survival survivable injuries if so he's brain dead um, and then um, there's this whole issue of organ donation that we can talk about um, we see patrick again he's got um, a head laceration um doug cares for a woman who laments something that happened long ago in her life and kind of that emotional memory comes back every year at Christmas and this prompts him to go and crash Carol's engagement party which is a really bad idea Um, meanwhile Susan discovers that Div has moved out in the middle of the night um, and she didn't even know she showed up with a gift for him oh and her sister's pregnant that's
0: it oh perfect (gasps) oh my gosh
2: Nicely done. That was dumb luck. (laughs)
0: Um, Yeah, so where do we want to start? Let's start with
2: organ donation because Benton makes the assumption that because um, this man has signed the back of his license in a certain way to indicate that he's willing to be an organ donor, um, Benton takes that as good enough to go um, and proceed with making arrangements and assume that we can harvest his organs um, while his mentor is telling him, uh, no, no, you're going to want to talk to the next of kin. You're going to want to talk to the family because. um," Oh, the dog just walked in. I'm sorry. (laughs) It distracted me (laughs) because um, you know, despite what um, someone's final wishes are, the next of kin, the parent, the spouse, or whomever um, might have conflicting wishes and, and feel some kind of way about whether or not organs are donated or whatnot. So um, that's a large theme, uh, both in this episode and in the work that we do. Mm-hmm.
1: This man's name is Teddy Powell, and I don't remember his wife's name. They're both very young mm-hmm. and What makes it more strange is that they've been separated for four or five months and haven't seen each other. And she was really hoping that that this Christmas time would be a time to reconcile. And instead, she gets this call that there will be no more Christmases. And basically, she needs people to listen to her as she talks through this new reality in her life. And it it takes several different staff members for her to be able to process, and she's sitting all over the hospital in different places. Uh, I believe smoking again. That was a theme we had a couple of episodes ago, mm-hmm. which seems seems so strange. <laughs> and uh, she uh, finally comes to the conclusion that she is ready to to let him go and uh, to sign the consent but it becomes a waiting game because there is uh, a certain amount of time that the uh, organs can be harvested before uh, they're not viable anymore and the problem is that Benton has already uh, given the alarm for all of the surgeons at all the mm-hmm. other places that are expecting the organs to be ready for them so his name and his honor is on the line
2: yeah
0: yeah and he makes well he makes several mistakes i mean one of them is calling everybody before he has come in contact with the next of kin and gotten their permission but he also um really puts a lot of pressure on this wife as soon as he meets her to just hurry up and sign the papers and doesn't take the time to listen to her story at all um which is definitely one place where a chaplain could have been very useful that, quote unquote, just listening um, could have made a lot of difference in this situation to find out, you know, what is her motivation here and to hear the story of their relationship. Not only have they been separated for five months, but apparently just... The day before this, she got a phone call from him asking her to spend Christmas together, and she said no because she wanted to, as she said, make him suffer for a while and then was hoping to reconcile later, but she was very hurt by him. I guess he's the one who initiated the separation. She wanted to hurt him back <laughs> and then was, you know, planning on, of course, having more time and more opportunities to work things out. And now the fact that this has happened and she isn't going to get to work things out in that way um, is, is horribly shocking to her. And she's dealing with all kinds of guilt and anger and all these other emotions that Peter was not giving her the chance to talk through and work through at all. Um, and so she's pushing back against him saying that she needs to sign the papers for that reason. Mm-hmm. Part of,
1: Part of Peter's problem is that once he makes the decision that the, that the organs are going to go, they're going to go forward with it. He stops seeing Teddy Powell as a person, as an individual.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, He refers to him. Yes. He, so that affects how he treats the wife. And he also refers to this man on the table as a gork, which personally I have never heard this word. We were talking to some other chaplains and unfortunately there were a few of them who had heard of it. It stands for God only really knows, which is a terrible way to refer to brain death um, as as something sort of in between life and death. Even though you know, in medical terms, we can understand that there's you know nothing nothing viable. You can't recover. This is not. Um, and so the moment that that Benton starts looking at him not as an individual but as a body that is going to be harvested, that is where he runs into problems. When, and then he comes back at the end, and he does recognize him as an individual, and he honors him, and he mm-hmm. asks to sew him up himself mm-hmm. and show him the dignity that he deserved
0: from the beginning.
2: Is he finally learned something.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And the other—oh, so, sorry. Um, I was go just going to say that the other thing is that she, um, the wife— does say so many of the same things that we hear um, in hospitals a lot of times when someone is on life support that she says you know but but his hands are still warm you know and it it still looks like he's breathing and there was a man in my church who was in a coma for six months and woke up and um and Peter has Mm -hmm. no patience for any of those things but Because he, you know, knows and sees brain death all the time, but she doesn't. You know, this is her husband. And so, of course, she's wanting to believe that he's going to come out of this. And someone on life support does give so many of those signs that we take as being signs of life. It's really hard for them to understand that.
1: Chaplains are often part of consults. In these kind of situations where you get a team together to talk to the family, hopefully in a group, um, the closest family and, and the decision makers in order to explain everything in a sensitive and, you know, particular way to help them make the best decision, the best informed decision about what's going on. And so that's something that, you know, in both hospitals that I was a part of, we called them different things, but mm-hmm. it's kind of like an ethics consultation and a team meeting for everyone to get together and be able to share information and and talk through it.
2: Well, and there are whole books and courses um, on biomedical ethics um, that help us um, measure these, these instances and think about um, what our values are and what our faith tradition tells us. Um, And so it's really interesting, I'm guessing y'all have seen some similarities um, to what I've seen. You can have um, Protestant Christians, for example, making vastly different, deeply convicted choices around um, donating organs or not donating organs or um, when autopsies are optional to choose to do one or not. you you have people who feel very strongly about these choices and whether or not you're going to cut open their loved one and take out organs for the purposes of, um, you know, fact-finding and, or donation, um, because it messes with their, um, kind of their eschatological theology, Mm -hmm. right? What comes next. Um, and so the choices that they are making are very dependent upon what they believe will happen um, after death in in whatever uh, life or promises are to come and and their beliefs about whether or not you know body should be intact. and um, I mean, it's conne- connected to their understanding of the resurrection of the body. Um, but what's interesting to me is that you can have deeply convicted Protestant Christians, for example. Um, who believe and, and affirm all of these? Um, you know, I believe in, in the resurrection and the life everlasting, um, but who will make the exact opposite choice? And because they believe that, um, I guess it's less of a one-to-one literal reality. I don't know. Um, but, maybe but when we're that- speaking when we're speaking
1: in theological um, or or faith language a chaplain can help translate that to medical professionals Absolutely. so that those beliefs are able to be honored no matter what they are. So it's vital to have someone on the team who, just like sometimes people don't understand medical jargon, we are trained to understand where people come from, where those, those beliefs are seated, so that we can help them with that and help others to respect those. Um, that's mm-hmm. very important to us to, to try and understand where they're coming from and what their core values are. So, yes, that's wonderful, Carrie. Mm
0: -hmm. And there are also people, I don't know how you guys have experienced these in the hospitals that you've worked in, but there are people from the organ procurement organization who come in and speak to the families as well. Um, And I've had really wildly different experiences of, of those people. Sometimes they're great and sometimes they are just terrible and really pushy with the families. Um, And, in one of the hospitals where I did my training, actually, the chaplains were the ones who approached families to ask about organ donation, um, and they went through special training to do that, but there were there were times when, to me, it felt really awkward to try to switch gears and, and put on that hat of, okay, I'm the chaplain here, but now I need to try to convince them to donate their family members' organs, um, and sometimes those two were in conflict. Um yes. So I don't know. I was really glad that I never had to be one of those people to, to try and um, cross that line. I just shadowed chaplains who were trained in that and did it. Um, and again, some of them did it well and a couple of them really, really badly.
1: Mm-hmm. These situations so, are pretty difficult. Yeah. They're, they're rough, you know, terrain to wander. And, you know, not, of course, none of, them are exactly the same either. So each of them are individual stories that you're going into that you're needing to listen to all the different details about before decisions are made. So by no means is is this an easy decision either way, is it cut or dry. Um and there it's so emotionally charged for everyone. Right. I think we talked about that in one of our other episodes a little bit that mm-hmm. um the staff and the family can really have, have issues with with these situations.
0: Yeah. And there is and understandably. Uh, so, yeah, there is an element of urgency. I mean, there is a time factor. And so the staff can get really antsy and just want the family to hurry up and decide. But, um, you know, for the family, it it is a big deal. And theology does come into it. And um, the thought of having their their loved one's body cut apart in that way can be really, really difficult for them to confront even with the thought that it could help other people. um, Sometimes that's just, it takes them a while to get to that point if they do at all. And sometimes they do say no and we have to be okay with that. So
2: while we're in um, this, this theological thinking mode, can we talk about the word harvest?
0: Yes.
2: Um, So for me, it is this paradoxical thing to hear the word harvest in this context to talk about harvesting a person's um, organs because it is, to me, um, it sounds both awful and beautiful at the same time. Um, tell me about y'all's experience of this word.
0: We are actually discouraged from saying it. Um, that's the That language is... Um, organ procurement is what we're told to say or the whole staff is is told to use now because harvest has does have some negative connotations for a lot of people and um and as especially sometimes i've heard patients families say you know like accuse the doctors of well you you didn't try hard enough to save him because you just want to harvest his organs you know and there is that thinking that there's more that could be done but it's not being done because it would be of more value to the hospital to have those organs than to save this one patient you know yeah
2: well theologically
1: the idea of harvest is is both death and life i think so Mm -hmm. i can see it metaphorically as something beautiful yes and what is that tell us about that term that i've heard you use before carrie when something is both hard but beautiful
2: you you call it a brutiful Right? brutiful (laughs) it's it's brutal and beautiful yes
1: I, i loved it when i heard you use that for the first time and that's that's what you know, organ harvesting does bring to mind—it's—it's it's both, mm-hmm. because it's the death of someone, but it's the opportunity for new life for someone else. And some really latch on to that—that that idea,
2: mm-hmm. and others mm-hmm. don't like it. Mm-hmm. Well, and you know, when we talk about um, images from our sacred stories, a lot of times the sort of agricultural imagery and the imagery of harvest and bountiful harvest um are um employed many times and here the the prevailing the title the prevailing theme in this episode is the gift um i'm thinking that their intention was to um, point to the gift of life um because we have the lives that are saved um by resuscitation and then we have the lives that are saved by um you know, harvesting these organs and then that one person. So when you talk about like the parable of the sower and, you know, and the bounty of the harvest, um, there is this, this way in which this one person has now given life to countless people, um, because of all of these different organs that were, um, sent out to all of these different people in need, which is the beautiful part of it. Um, and for reasons, this just came into my head, so I haven't really spent time working it out. Um, I can't quite name for me why it's such a, like, a wincing, inducing kind of word as well. It's, it's brutal and awful um, at the same time that it is this life-giving bounty harvest connotation as well.
1: I think it just depends on the individual or the family, how you can read them and see how they react to things and, and what their beliefs and backgrounds are as to whether they would respond to that phrasing or not. And then, as Stacy said, some hospitals have standards of, uh, of how you refer to things as well, so you have to respect those.
2: Oh, don't get me wrong. I wasn't even thinking about how we are showing up with the patients regarding this word. I'm just kind of thinking about the idea behind using it in this context ever in the first place, like how it came to be used. <laughs> it is an interesting thought, yes. Mm-hmm.
1: It's not it's the first word I would think of.
2: Yeah. No. Okay, what else do we have in this episode?
1: All right, Stacy. I have to say, sad, introspective Doug Ross is really beautiful. He looks all sad and he's wandering those wet, shiny streets of Chicago. I'm like, oh man, I'd like to give him a hug.
0: Right? Yeah. You just want to comfort him. Even though he
1: drives me crazy most of the time. (laughs) And he should not go to engagement parties that he's not invited to. No, even
0: though he was horrible and possessive of Carol at that party and just really inappropriate make really self-centered
1: choices and i'm disappointed in green because he suggested to ross that he basically needed to make another move on her after she said no multiple times (laughs) so i don't know what he's thinking with that because everybody sees green as you know an authority on on things and sees right yeah fairly happily married and you know sort of the head of this group so
0: um can we talk for a minute about the boy who fell through the ice and his father um I have to say I don't know why but from when the first time when I was watching this I just got like a creepy vibe off this dad and I thought it was going to turn out to be some kind of an abuse situation but no maybe it was just that actor I don't know the way
1: he said he couldn't find him and he thought he was under the water for five minutes my, my head immediately went to, hmm, there's something. There's foul play here, or he's not telling the truth on the timeline, or he's hiding something. Yeah, so, he seemed
0: to be hiding something to me,
1: but I guess not. I don't know. They didn't go into that, but, well, it was a long, drawn-out thing because, you know, five minutes of not finding someone, there's a pretty good chance of brain damage. So,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know, it would be important to understand the, the whole timeline. But at the same time, when you're in a trauma like that, time doesn't really make a whole lot of sense either, so he yeah. could have honestly not known
0: yeah, I mean, I would imagine you would just lose your mind at that point if it's your kid um, and have mm-hmm. no sense of time understandable and thankfully, it was freezing cold water, so that helped um with the brain damage part but if you're gonna drown, do it in icy water <laughs> who said that oh. was it Doug who said that <laughs> Doug
2: yeah, oh, yeah. Doug
0: and you have the the dad praying over the little boy dear god please don't take my son and just oh i hear that theology so often of god you're taking somebody away um and that's so hard to um to know how to confront that in those kind of situations but
2: Mm
1: -hmm.
0: what do you all say when you hear people say things like that
2: Well, when it's in a crisis moment like that, I usually keep my mouth shut. Yeah, me too. Which is really hard for me. That's working against my reflexes. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, you know, when it's not a crisis moment like that, I like to ask questions to get a better sense of um, who God is for this person. Um, Because is is God. The God who takes children on Christmas Eve.
0: Right.
2: Um, that doesn't sound like a super hopeful God. mm um, and, and the other thing I've noticed, and have we talked about this, or maybe it's just a conversation I've had with other colleagues at other times, but there's this, it seems to me that folks will sort of downshift in terms of their stages of faith um, in crisis moments. Have you noticed that? Mm -hmm.
1: Yes, absolutely.
2: Let's talk about that.
1: Well, one of the most common things that I remember coming up on is uh, that people would be horrified because they would hear themselves saying something that they felt showed a doubting or a questioning of God. And perhaps they'd been in a tradition where, they felt that that was not encouraged. And I would yeah. always, you know, bring to light that, you know, if, if God is as big as we say, you know, he is, then he can handle that. He can handle any emotion that we have because uh, he made all those emotions. And so when, when people are railing against God and then stop and apologize to me, I will always say, no, you go right ahead. God can handle it. Mm-hmm. That's one of the most common
2: ones I came up against, and I can handle it, too. I mean, I think that's an important part of demonstrating who we are and how we can serve others is by sitting there and being a non-judgmental, non-anxious presence while someone is screaming and yelling at God, and maybe they're looking up in the air or maybe they're looking at us and seeing us as a representative of God. Um, and either way, it doesn't matter. I'm not threatened by your anger at God. I'm not scared by your anger at God. Mm-hmm. I can just sit here with you and join you in this moment um, and, and, and let it be. Um, and and then defend are- you from family members who want to shut yes. that down because oh, they're Lord, not yes. willing
1: to face it at that point. Um, if If I do have family members who do not allow others to explore those feelings, I will take them out of the room or somehow change the You know, what's going on in order to, because if you don't, if you don't grieve or let and let emotions out, then they'll find another way some other time. So let's just go ahead and and do it. That's why I don't believe in medicating grief or delaying grief. Just let it happen. It's not fun, right but it cannot be delayed. Well,
2: because it comes out sideways. Like you said, Sarah Jane, if we don't deal with it and we do repress it and stuff it and stuff it. It'll come out sideways, and it's rarely pretty. Mm-hmm. Well, it used to be common back in
1: the, the mid-1900s to um, have someone who was, had, was facing a trauma or had someone who was dying to medicate them. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I came across that a lot <laughs> as a problem. You know, can't you give them someone? Can't you give them a sedative to someone who was seen as having... Inappropriately loud or, you know, mm-hmm. crying grief that threatened another member of the family. But in order, in order for you to get any kind of medication, you have to be admitted to the hospital, which would,
0: mm-hmm.
2: you know,
1: take you away from your loved one and slow down the whole process of grief.
2: And so charge I would, you
1: an arm and a leg. Right. <laughs> I would always advise against that and try and, and talk them through. Um, You know, that these things were completely natural, even though they were no fun to feel.
2: This reminds me also of um, cultural competency issues in hospital settings where you have people of um, different ethnic backgrounds, racial backgrounds, religious backgrounds, and folks from those different groups tend to view the grieving, um, the way that. Grieving folks show up from other cultures and ethnicities and religions as, um, wrong Mm -hmm. or inappropriate, I can still remember, um, the little tiny white waspy, um, young resident who called me in once because she said, I really need you to come in. You know, we've got this family member, um, Such and such has happened to her loved one, and she's so inappropriate right now. And I get there. What has happened is um, the adult child of this um, older African American woman has died, and she is on the floor, and she is wailing and keening. And my first thought was this is perfectly appropriate. Her child has died. Um, who, even though is an adult child, you know that child is never not your baby, right? At any age and stage, um, but because it was a different way of grieving than, you know, White Waspy Girl, it was deemed inappropriate. I'm like, yeah, she's—that's what.
1: That's why I say we have to protect against security, mm-hmm. because a lot of times someone like that who doesn't have those experience would have called security to come and carry her out. Mm -hmm. of that situation when really what she needs to do is carry on through that grief and so a lot of times we stand as as a wall to separate you know them from whatever is going on so that they can continue to you know go through those those cycles as they need
2: i just get down on the floor with them
0: yeah I, I i have done
2: that as well rocking in the same pattern with them like yep this is awful you just have to spend time in the awful now. Mm-hmm. And a lot of other people that are uncomfortable with that, they can they can
1: just leave the scene. It's fine. I've yeah. I've had that happen, and I'm willing to be
2: there. Yeah,
1: that's part of the sacred too.
0: It is. <laughs> yeah, I had a um a man whose wife. Was dying, and um, there were lots of family in the room with him. And when I came in and introduced myself as a chaplain, he just looked at me very angrily, and he said, "I've loved God all my life, but right now I want to tell him what a selfish son of a bitch he is." And every all the rest of the family members were just. (gasps) you know, you can't say that, you know, you know, we can't question God and just on and on. And I just went over to him and put my hand on his arm and I said, then I think you should say it. I think God's heard worse. And I think God knows yeah. what you're feeling right now. And, and and so he, he eventually wanted everybody else out of the room, but let me stay with him while his wife passed and, um, and had been up to that point really, Um, angry and aggressive with staff members, really angry and yelling at other family members. And he was just so much more at peace when he was finally allowed and given permission to be angry at God, which was who he was really mad at to begin with. Yeah. Yeah.
2: what were we talking about how did we get on that
0: um we got from murray the little boy who fell through the ice and his father praying god don't take my little boy and the idea of god taking people
1: i'd like to mention uh, mr kaminsky who had an electrical burn because he was trying to hook up into the power grid um i would like to mention that because my husband and i are our crazy Christmas light people. I thought and, of Trey the whole time I was watching this guy. I was like, that's Trey. I, of course, my husband is an electrical engineer, so one would yeah. hope that he would be a whole lot smarter and safer than trying to climb up the pole and connect in. Um, we've never had any close calls like that. Oh, but uh, we do we, um, have, we have several different power boxes, and Trey has rigged up his, his own system, and then we um, have about... Six different songs that we have the lights dance to and flash to. So um
0: <laughs> it's this, a this is a pretty
1: big thing, you know, out there. So I found it relatable. I didn't think he was absolutely ridiculous. You know, the way the way he was talking the whole time through it, and that, you know, this was his heart. This was this was his calling to the neighborhood, poor thing. He kept talking about how his heart was broken.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: And yes, he didn't I, charge I people for it. it. He
0: just wanted everyone to be able to enjoy it. <laughs> yeah, it's it's like a
1: Christmas gift to the neighborhood, I think, is and and Trey is, is such a hospitable guy and I admire that about him because I'm such a, a hermity introvert sometimes. But <laughs> but having people drive around the outside of my house, you know, that's a
0: good compromise for us.
1: <laughs> so <laughs>
0: like you can invite guests over and not have to clean your house or anything right
2: <laughs> but you know i like that i hadn't made that connection but that was you know in the theme of this show being the gift that was kind of yes. his gift to the community was this um this is another joyful thing to have you know the lights and the music and it is well he a, says
1: his, his wife said that he should charge people but yeah. no he couldn't do that this is this is what he's doing for them. You know, this is something he wants to give them. So again, that goes back to that theme. Mm
2: -hmm. I love that.
0: And then I loved um, Susan's patient, the woman who was in her forties, we think um, who, who, comes in thinking she has appendicitis and then it turns out she has a baby in there and she had been told she could never have children and um she's like her she's can't wait to call her husband and tell him he's gonna flip um as a, a woman who's gonna be 41 next month and really really wants a baby I liked that storyline a whole lot so
1: <laughs> yeah that was very joyful too
0: yeah again that gift of life mm-hmm. and
2: especially the surprise unexpected nature of that gift yeah. so delightful
0: Yeah, and we do, like, it's all too rare, I think, (laughs) in my job anyway, That, but occasionally it does happen that we get that unexpected good news um, happens for a patient, and we get to be there to celebrate it with them.
2: Oh, wow, I can still remember. So um, the woman on staff at my church um, who is a pastoral care uh, pastor here where I worship, was having a baby, and I didn't even know she was coming in for a scheduled C-section, um, and I just happened to run into her into in the halls of the hospital on a day where I was working two fetal demise cases simultaneously, cool. and running into her and her husband and greeting them and the surprise of like, oh, you're here. The baby's coming today. Wow. Um, and then her inviting me to come and offer a pre-surgery prayer mm. with her before the C-section. Oh man, talk about a gift. Like I, it probably was more ministerial to me, um, and more pastoral care to me for her to offer me into that, uh, like invite me into that time and space, um, to celebrate the joy and anticipation of this child arriving, particularly when I was working, you know, these two cases where, um, these pregnancies were lost, and those mothers were grieving, and um, it's terribly sad every time. And and then she invited me back again after her baby was here, and I just got to come in and do a little blessing with them and pray again, giving thanks. And I'm telling you, it was a gift back to me mm-hmm. because you're right; it's a rare occasion that we get called for good news. Yeah, you know, y'all. That's why I really.
1: the the second hospital I worked at was not a trauma center. And so I did, I, we had an ER, but the worst thing you were going to see there was a broken bone or a heart attack. Okay. Mm. So I'm not saying that some of those weren't serious, but for for the rest of my time, I did rounds in all the other areas of the hospital. And so we had orthopedic surgeries and I would go in and visit people after they had gotten new joints and, and, uh, had, had, you know, their pain taken away. And they're having oh. their first walk out in physical therapy in the hall. And, you know, they see me and, and they recognize me from the day before. And they're like, look, look at the difference. I'm out of bed. <sighs> um, and then I also did rounds on the floor um, with babies. And I not only got to pray with, you know, the, the preemies and the babies that had issues, but also did daily visits with anyone who was willing for me to come do a blessing. And so Mm -hmm. in the areas where I wasn't dealing with trauma as often um, as you are with some of those other hospitals, I really did enjoy some of those, those regular good news that I was able to experience it more. And so that that's different than dealing with the level one trauma center, even though that's very important too. Mm -hmm.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: Definitely. And on the organ donation end, I got to be um, the chaplain to a family from my church on the night that the patriarch of the family got a new heart. And that is one of my favorite chaplain experiences ever. Um, And it was actually right around Christmas time (laughs) because I was with them all night while he was in surgery, went home to go sleep. It was when I was working overnight shifts um, and was planning to come back to see him that night. But had been told, you know, he'll still be on the ventilator, but that's normal. He'll be in ICU and everything. And so went to visit him as soon as I got there that evening for the start of my shift. And as I come around the corner to his room, i hear him singing christmas carols he's drugged out of his mind but he's not on the vent anymore you know he's breathing on his own singing on his own um and he's just so happy and singing christmas carols and joy to the world indeed yeah it was a really awesome day to be a chaplain oh and I loved praying with them. And they were also sensitive to the fact that as they were celebrating, another family was grieving. That That's the reason they got this, this heart, you know, and they had me pray for that family as well. So. Oh, chaplaincy. <laughs> um, so we are about at the end of our time. Um, does anybody have any final thoughts before we wrap up?
2: Well, real quick, can y'all help me? Did I miss a beat in the whole Susan Div um, storyline over the last couple of episodes? So two episodes ago, we leave him wandering in the middle of the rain, in the middle of the interstate. Mm-hmm. It looks like there's a really big highway.
1: Beckins would consider that to be a suicide attempt myself. Yes.
2: Yes. That's what I think they wanted us to to believe like he's he's trying to commit suicide by car, and um, and then last episode, you know, there's like little bitty references to no one can reach him, but Susan doesn't seem so. It's Thanksgiving when she's trying to call him when he's walking in traffic, and she can't reach him, and then the next episode. People are saying no, he's not on call. He's not in the hospital. Nobody can. I think reach it was him. Malik who said he quit. Malik had and
1: heard before she had.
2: In this yeah, episode, so, yeah, she's just now kind of learning that. Like, okay. And then this episode, um, she doesn't hear anything from him, so she's like assuming that they have broken up. But then she still shows up at his apartment with a big huge package wrapped and ready to give him and discovers an empty apartment.
0: Yeah, in my notes yep. for the, the first episode tonight on the Blizzard episode, I was like, why is Susan not more worried about Div? <laughs> like, she's trying to call him, everybody at the hospital's trying to call him, they get no answer, and she just kind of goes about her business. And, like, they were in a relationship for months, you know, had keys to each other's apartments and slept over on a regular basis, but she Pretty didn't seem serious. all that concerned. And she knew that he was suffering from depression, you know? Why is she not more worried about him?
2: He's MIA on Thanksgiving, and then, like, I would just imagine that, you know, even if she thinks, okay, he's ghosting me, like, clearly doesn't want to be in a relationship with anymore, wouldn't you want to kind of, like, touch base with, like, okay, is yes. he still, like, with us?
0: Yeah, and- especially when no one at yes. work can reach him, too, so it's not just, like, he's trying to avoid her, like, something is wrong. Sometimes
1: there are holes here, though, in these plots, like, you don't really, we don't know all the background story of, of these characters and also she's, she's dealing with her sister who she's just she's got her boyfriend and sister living with her at this point she doesn't have a car regularly and now Chloe is pregnant so she's yeah. a lot on her mind mm-hmm. but I agree it, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense I think we're just supposed to assume that she's just so super busy I don't know I would certainly
0: not let it go like she had no <laughs>
2: Yeah, that's, yeah.
0: But we haven't quite seen the last of Div, I'll say that. Good. (gasps) Ooh, foreshadowing. Yeah.
1: Well, that means he's still alive, so I'm happy about that, because I was pretty rough on him, and and he obviously needs some big help, so. Yeah. Yeah, he's still out there. Well, Merry Christmas in May, everyone. (laughs) (laughs) I think we've got these two episodes pretty wrapped up and uh, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. feeling in a holiday mood.
0: Yeah. Next week we'll be ringing in the new year, 1995 um, on ER. So got that to look forward to listeners. Thank you all so much for listening, and again, I will ask um, if you could please take a moment to write a review on your favorite podcast app. That will really help us. Um, we've got some stars. We just don't have any written reviews, so even a couple sentences would be great, and we'll give you a shout-out on the show even um, if you can do that. We would love to hear from you on any of our social media accounts and chat with you about ER or about chaplaincy um, anytime. Sarah Jane and Carrie, thank you so much for the conversation. Great as always. And we will be back with you for more ER Chaplains Watching ER very soon. ER Chaplains Watching ER is produced at Top 5 Studios by my talented husband, Will Lawton. Music for the show is provided by our band, Rogue Two. You can hear some more of our great original songs at Rogue Two, that's T-W-O if you like this podcast, please subscribe and leave us a review on your favorite podcast app so other listeners can find us. Let us know your thoughts about the show on Twitter at chaplains underscore ER or comment on our Facebook page at chaplins_watching_er. ER. You can learn more about the hosts and find show notes for each episode on our website, chaplainswatching.net. Follow me on Twitter and Facebook at Stacy Sargent. That's S-E-R-G-E-N-T. I blog about hospital chaplaincy, step-parenting, and other stuff at stacyandsargent.com, where you can also find links to get my book, Being Called Chaplain, How I Lost My Name and Eventually Found My Faith. Join us right here next week for more insightful conversations about ER.